Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, we've been studying the Lord's Prayer together during Sunday morning broadcasts, and uh, we had a week off last week, though, for Mother's Day, and when you're studying a passage this closely, it's sometimes really easy to lose sight of the big picture, especially when you get a little break thrown in there. So I want to start this morning by taking a big step back and getting the big, wide context of everything that's going on here. I think it's really going to help us as we drill down into this week's passage, which is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the first question I want to ask this morning is, who is Jesus talking to in this passage? Well, if we turn back just a couple of pages in Matthew, we see this basic turn of events that leads to this point. In Matthew 3, Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and when he's baptized, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after that, in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He endures immense temptation. He does battle with Satan. And then he comes out and he immediately begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he calls his first disciples. And when you come to the end of Matthew 4, it says this, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds came to him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So then when this sermon begins in chapter five, who's there? All kinds of people from all over. Jews, yes, but probably some Gentiles. He's been preaching throughout Galilee, which was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It says people came to him from Galilee and Decapolis and from beyond the Jordan. And many of them were poor and afflicted, desperate people. You're talking about people who walked miles and miles in order to see a man they've heard could heal them. This is a mixed rabble of people. And they've all come to Jesus from all over, all at the very beginning of his ministry for one reason or another. And he's healing them. And then he goes up on the mountain and he starts preaching to them. And he preaches in a way that no one's ever heard before. Jesus speaks with real authority. And not the uh, authority that's not propped up by the insecurities of a weak Bible teacher who needs to use big words and make lots of references to prop himself up, but the kind of authority that's able to get really, really low and speak to people on their level, speak to people in their needs in the humblest and simplest of language. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And all throughout the sermon, you can feel Jesus almost getting down on his knees as if he's talking to children. It's all so simple and so profound. And just because it's simple, and he's condescending to us, doesn't mean that it doesn't have an edge. It has sharp edges all over. This sermon is the sermon of all sermons. And that's part of why I want to step back this morning. I want us to step back and see the simplicity of everything that's being taught here. When we come to the Lord's Prayer, it's Jesus stooping down to teach us how to pray, which means that we need to be taught how to pray. Now, be honest. Have you ever felt 
like you need to be taught how to pray. That it's hard. Were you ever that new Christian that showed up at a Bible study or a community group and got called on to pray and you were just like, um, now I lay me down to sleep? Good bread, good meat. Or were you the shy kid in Sunday school? Or the shy kid at youth group? Have you ever been that kid whose prayers at youth, youth group largely consisted of, Lord, please don't let him call on me to pray? Jesus knew his disciples needed to be taught how to pray. So don't feel stupid if you feel like you need to be taught how to pray. If you feel like you need help. In Luke, where we find the other version of the Lord's Prayer, Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches it to his disciples because they actually come to him and they ask him how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. We all need to be taught how to pray. And so I want to go through this entire prayer as a whole fairly quickly. And as I do, I want to make some connections that I think will help us as we come to today's passage. The Lord's Prayer begins with these words, Our Father in heaven. It is impossible to overstate the importance of how Jesus teaches us to think of God here, especially when it comes to prayer. It's really radical. No other religion teaches you to call God Father, and yet in the Sermon on the Mount alone, Jesus speaks of God as Father 16 times. 14 of those times, he calls God your Father. Father is not an abstract distant name for God. It's a personal name. It's a relational name. So over and over and over, Jesus is teaching us throughout this sermon that life and godliness is all about our relationship to the Father. Why are we supposed to be salt and light? You remember, be salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Why are we supposed to be salt and light? So that people will see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Why are we supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? So we may be sons of our Father who's in heaven. Why does that make us his sons? He makes his son and the rain fall on the righteous and on the unjust and on the wicked, on the evil and on the good. We're to be like him. We're we're to return evil with good. Why are we supposed to be perfect? Because our Father is perfect. Why are we not supposed to draw attention to ourselves when we give to the poor or when we pray? Because hypocrites need to do things for the praise of men, but sons live to please their father who sees what's done in secret. Why do we not have to heap up our words when we pray? Because our father knows what we need before we ask him. So when we pray, how are we supposed to pray? To our father. Let's not overcomplicate prayer. Jesus doesn't. He makes it really, really simple. We're to pray as little children talking to our Father in heaven. Take the whole first part of this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, your name is awesome and holy. Your kingdom is awesome. Your commands and rules are right and good. And I want your name to be honored. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. Please make it so. In some ways, it makes me think of of kids at the playground. Like little boys, think about it. Have you ever been a part of or heard a conversation on the playground that goes something like this? My dad can beat up your dad. My dad's smarter than your dad. My dad's cooler than your dad. My dad could beat your dad at basketball. My dad can throw a football farther than your dad. 
my dad says this. Yeah, well, my dad says that. Now look, I don't, I don't want to trivialize the Lord's Prayer, but the whole first part of this prayer is not all that different from a kid who just loves his dad and knows his dad loves him. That little boy on the playground is a believer in his daddy. He's out to spread the rule and reign of his father, to expand his father's kingdom, to show the world that his dad is the best dad. My dad is awesome. Dad knows best. I've got to make my friends understand that. My dad says means my, my dad should rule. I won't let anyone speak bad about my dad. It's natural, it's innate. God wrote it into the fabric of the universe and that's how we're supposed to relate to God the Father. My Father in heaven is the king of everything. Don't you dare disrespect his name. This is what my Father says you should do in this situation. He's made a rule about that and his rules are good. You should obey them and submit to them, it'll be good for you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I know some of us have had bad dads and abusive dads and absent dads. Maybe you never really had the dad that inspired that kind of playground loyalty. You're always a little annoyed and jealous of the kid who did. I don't want to paper over your pain. But look, if you are in Christ, You have a father who loves you, who adopted you into his family, who's promised to provide for you and care for you, to forgive you when you sin against him and fall short, and to lead you and to protect you. And so much I think of learning to pray is just learning and relearning that over and over and over. It's less about praying and more about knowing and walking with and living in communion with God, our heavenly father. That's why Romans says, we know we're his sons because our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. So then the second half of the prayer, which I've already sort of gone through if you were paying attention. God is a Father who provides all our needs, who cares for us. Give us this day our daily bread. A little later in this same sermon, Jesus tells us not to worry or to be anxious over our food or our drink or our clothes. Why? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Your heavenly Father feeds them and clothes them and takes care of them. Will your Father not much more clothe you? The Gentiles seek after all these things, but your Father knows that you need them all. Then again, a little later in the same sermon, Jesus says that famous quote, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. Why can you count on that? Well, when your son asks you for bread, you don't give him a stone. When he asks for fish, you don't give him a snake. And you're evil. How much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Ask your father for what you need, for your daily bread. Little kids have no problem asking mommy and daddy for food when they're hungry. It's just what they do. So when you're hungry, when you have something you need, turn to your father and ask him. Don't be afraid. He's not going to give you a snake or a stone. And then the prayer moves into forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We have a father who is ready to forgive us all our debts and sins. Why else would Jesus teach us to pray and ask for forgiveness if he wasn't ready to forgive us? 
And then today's passage, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have a father who is ready to lead and protect us from ourselves, from the world, and from the devil. Now at this point, I wanna give us an illustration. How many of you kids or parents maybe think back on when you were a kid? How many of you have ever been in a really big, fun, cool place? It could be a small place that feels big when you're a kid, like Jumpin' Joey's or Chuck E. Cheese. It could be the county fair or the mall or a big city that you visited maybe on vacation or a place that's sort of like a maze, like City Museum in St. Louis. Go ahead and put yourself there for a minute as a little kid, whatever is most vivid for you. For me, I'm going to the fall festival in Evansville. It's huge. Don't think county fair, think state fair. It's widely been considered to be the second largest street festival in the country, second only to Mardi Gras. In 2019, USA Today ranked it the second best festival in the country. It's a big deal. And it's not in these enclosed fairgrounds. They've blocked off city blocks and streets, and they've taken over a city park, and hundreds of thousands of people descend on it. And everywhere you go, there are food booths and rides and games, and there's something for everybody, unless you don't like rides or games or food or people watching. This year is supposed to be the 99th annual fall festival, and uh, if we have it, because of this COVID stuff, I want everybody to come down and join me and check it out, because it's going to be a lot of fun. Anyhow, when you go to a place like that as a kid, it's big, and it's thrilling, and it's a little bit scary. There's so much to do, so many things to want, and it's so easy to wander off and get lost, especially if you have a fistful of tickets in your hand because there are lights and games with callers and so many cool rides that you can go on, and you're just a little guy. And there are all these adults around who are so much bigger than you, and it's hard to see, and everybody's moving in different directions. So they have these lost kids stations and cops on the lookout for lost kids. And remember, I remember rather as a kid, that tension of wanting to go off and do my own thing and also being terrified of How will I ever find my dad again? When am I going to be big enough to go off on my own? What if I get lost? Do my friends get to go off on their own? Am I falling behind the curve? Or then the first couple of times that you're trusted to do that sort of thing, that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach that's equal parts exhilaration and terror? Have you ever been the kid that goes off and gets lost? Some of you have been that kid on accident. I have a couple kids who are kind of space cadets. One of them wandered off on us in City Museum. Ian? Have you ever been that kid on purpose? Have you ever just decided, I'm going to go off, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to take advantage of all the chaos around me, I'm going to slip away, I'm going to lead myself through this mess, or I'm just going to let myself get led along by the lights and the sounds and all the things that are pulling on my heart? Maybe you had fun for a while, you got sucked into looking at the cool stuff, but then you looked up and you were lost and alone and desperate for a friendly face. You did it to yourself and then you start to have terrifying thoughts about Pinocchio and donkey ears because that movie scarred you as a child. Or maybe that's just me. One way or another, mom or dad finds you. Maybe somebody helps you. You're back with your parents whose job's not, to just, not just to provide for you, but to protect you. You're back in the world of safety. How do you feel? 
You're sorry. You need to be forgiven. You need to be assured that daddy still loves you. And he does. And that doesn't mean that daddy may not still have some discipline for you for running off. But then what is it that you want to do from then on? Well, it depends on your age a little. But one way or another, you really just kind of want to hold daddy's hand, don't you? You want daddy to lead you. Maybe if you're smaller, you want him to carry you. Maybe if you're older, you don't want to admit that you want to hold daddy's hand. So you don't, but either way, you don't want to be out of sight again. You want daddy to lead you, to protect you, to deliver you from evil, even when that evil is an evil of your own making. We are so much like the kids at a carnival, at Vanity Fair. The world's flashing its bright lights around us. The devil is calling to us. All our own sinful desires are in league with it all. And like a child, it's, what can I have? What can I get? How can I get away? As Christians, none of that really goes away. We have the Holy Spirit and we have a Father who loves us, but our sins often get the better of us. So it's always, Father, provide for me. Father, forgive me. Father, lead me and protect me. And I really think it's just that simple. That's how Jesus is teaching us to pray here. Now, the passage I'm focusing on this morning is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So I want to open that passage up in a little bit more detail. And I want to close by talking a little bit about what to do with our temptations when we're faced with them. But first, I do want to take a brief little trip down a rabbit bunny side trail thing and deal with the question I know a lot of people have when they first read this passage. And this is the question. Does God lead us into temptation? And here's my answer. Yes and no. Look, I don't want to get caught up in exercises and missing the point. But I understand where that question comes from. There's a reason why when Pastor Baker taught on this in Sunday school, he spent two lessons just on that question. So, Very quickly, we've already read this passage at the beginning. It says this, it's Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he put Matthew four immediately in front of the Sermon on the Mount and worded it that way. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. But then there's the passage in James that says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. How do we reconcile these things? I think it's pretty simple. God does send us various trials and tests. He does lead us into those. He does that for our good. We should expect that. We should count it all joy. And at the same time, we should understand that every trial and test is an occasion for temptation, We still have an enemy within us, enemies in the world and in the devil. Jesus went into the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days, then he got hungry. And the devil came and tempted him to turn stone into bread. In Greek, the words for trial and test and temptation are all very closely related. Sometimes they're the same word. Now, if you want a very thorough and careful exposition of this, just go listen to Pastor Baker's two-part exegesis of all that In the Lord's Prayer, in a Sunday school class, you can find it on the church website. It's parts 10 and 11. It's really helpful, but I'm just going to summarize it. When we pray for God to not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, we are praying that God would protect us from the external circumstances and the inward attitudes of our heart that would lead us to fall into sin. 
We're praying that he would fulfill his promise to deliver us from evil by providing us a way of escape when we're confronted by various temptations. As he says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Jesus, when tempted, prayed and turned to God's word. He used it as an offensive weapon to guard and protect himself from sin, and he was delivered from evil. Okay, rabbit, bunny trail, over. Because there's some application that I want to get to as we close. I was talking to Ben Salser about this specific passage the other day, and he was telling me that the most encouraging thing to him about it was Jesus actually teaching us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, when Jesus tells us to ask for our daily bread, he's teaching us we can actually ask God for our needs and he'll hear us. When Jesus tells us to ask God to forgive our debts, he's teaching us that God wants to forgive us our debts. And when Jesus teaches us to ask God not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, it means that God wants to help us overcome the sin in our lives. He wants to lead us in paths of righteousness and to deliver us from evil. We don't have to do this on our own. We don't have to just muscle up. God's not a father telling us to figure it out on our own. We don't have to find our own path to offering God the obedience he requires. Some of you get wrapped up in that problem and then you feel your sin and you feel your inability to do right and you despair. And it doesn't ever occur to you that you can come to a father who wants to help you. And you can ask him to lead you and protect you and deliver you. And he will. Because he delights to do that sort of thing for his children. And he sent his son not just to make it possible for you to be reconciled to him through his death, burial, and resurrection, not just to give you his Holy Spirit so that you can walk in newness of life, but he also sent that same son so that he could get down on his knees and tell you, now, when you go to your father, pray like this. You can even use these words that I'm gonna give you. Ask him to help you, to lead you not into temptation, but to deliver you from evil. So the real question for us is, is that what we want? Jesus teaches us to ask God to forgive us our debts. And then he teaches us to ask God to not lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, and they're connected. For children of God, that connection is natural. When we sin and when we're really convicted of it, we're like that kid at the carnival who runs off, gets in trouble. We know we're wrong. The dangers of our sins have scared us. We want that forgiveness and that assurance, and we want to hold daddy's hand and not go down that road again. We know we need his help. But there are some of us that don't really care about the dangers. We want to get lost. We want to sin. We're looking for and seeking out our temptations. If we could live in Vanity Fair, we would. All we really want is to let our hearts run wild and to wander around the carnival and do whatever we want. We want to play. Of course, we come up with different ways of doing this. Some of us just want to live sinful, worldly lives and do what we want to do, listen to what we want to listen to, watch what we want to watch, without ever giving a thought to our Father in heaven, and then still think that we're Christians and that we'll be okay, and we won't. Others of us don't want to run off into our sins so much as we want to flirt with our sins and lust and trust that we can repent when we need to. We're going to try to wander around the carnival 
we're also going to try to keep dad in sight just in case things get a little too out of hand. And some of us are even more sophisticated than that, and I want to end by talking a little bit about a specific, sophisticated way we avoid applying the truth of this simple prayer. Some of us want to reduce our Christianity to praying, forgive us our debts. And we'll even finish that as we forgive our debtors. And we'll confess our sins to our brothers and sisters in Christ, or at least some of them. But our whole understanding of what it means to be Christians boils down to just asking forgiveness. But that's only going halfway. We're going just far enough to give ourselves the cheap catharsis of praying forgive us our debts, as if being honest about our sins in some sense with God and with others. And we can do that because we've acclimated ourselves to the shame of admitting our sinfulness. We even learn to get a kick out of it, a cheap thrill. But we don't really want to repent of our sins. We don't want to change. We don't want to put in the work. So we're stuck just doing penance, and penance is a cheap thrill compared to really walking with God. We want to sin freely and presume on grace to abound. I've seen a lot of so-called accountability groups like this. I'm sure you have too. A bunch of college guys get together to confess their lusts and pray for each other. They all feel bad together and then they go out and they do the same thing week after week after week with no change. And we're all like that in one way or another. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray for God to deliver us from evil. It reminds us that the whole attitude of our hearts must be changed altogether. It's not enough to ask for forgiveness and then whip ourselves on the back and tell everybody we know how bad we are. And then hope that God somehow, somewhere, in some way is happy with our self-knowledge. Or with the punishment that we've delivered to ourselves. No, we must want to please God to walk in godliness and newness of life, to be free of sin, to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, as Jesus commands earlier in this sermon. And that brings me to the last point I want to make today, which is when we want to please God, it will look like something. It will have tangible results. There will be fruit. We will get down on our knees and pray, and then we will stand up and grab our father's hand and walk with him where he leads us. In other words, if you pray, forgive us our debts, sincerely, you will pray, lead us not into temptation, and then you will act. Let me pause and give an example of what I mean uh, from Pastor Tim just this past week. If you watched the nightly broadcast on Wednesday, you heard him confess to being impatient in Zoom meetings, and you heard him ask for prayer that he would be patient. Forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. That's one thing. It's a good first step. That's what Jesus is teaching us to do here. And that's the step that many of you saw publicly. But that wasn't the last step that Pastor Tim took. He also decided to cancel all our Zoom meetings. Why? It's better to not meet or to meet and go through the rigmarole of social distancing precautions than to sin. Just like it's better to cut off your hand than to have your whole body thrown into hell. This is just basic, simple, godly Christian wisdom. Let me give another broader example. Young men, many old married men, er, words, many old married men, and women for that matter, they do well to sleep with their iPhones not by their beds for any number of reasons. Why? Well, it's better to not be able to call the police when someone breaks into your home than to give an occasion for the lust of the flesh. 
It's taken me a long, long time to learn this sort of practical wisdom. And that's because if you know me, you know I'm a man who's ruled by his feelings and emotions. Almost all my decisions are made on an intuitive level. And if you don't know that about me, it's only because I fooled you by my good post. I've followed my gut rationalizations. So people like me, we get carried along moment by moment by our emotions. We pray for God to not lead us into temptation. But what we mean is, Lord, make my life easy. Rule my heart so I don't have to. So I don't have to have any self-discipline. So I never have to tell myself no. Maybe some of you can relate. But that's godlessness. Godliness means saying to yourself, no. No, I actually don't have to be ruled by my emotions or my temptations. I can take steps. I can identify the places in my life, the circumstances where I'm likely to slip, and I can not only pray for strength to flee temptations when I'm confronted with them, but I can take wise, disciplined steps to avoid those temptations. In fact, I need to do that. A younger version of me, and so I imagine some of you might say, well, that sounds unspiritual, that sounds mechanical. Jesus wants a heart change. You tell me. What do you call it when you say to yourself, wait, I want to obey God's commands, so I'm actually going to do the work of figuring out where and how it's hard for me. I'm going to make a plan so I can guard my steps and not sin against God. I've learned to call that faith. Because it begins with believing that God's commands are good and life-giving and joy-giving and that they're worth obeying, that they're worth doing some work for, they're worth making sacrifices for. Can you simply modify your behavior in a way that displeases God? Yeah, sure. Anyone can become a Pharisee. But here's a better question. Can you live a life that pleases God without taking actual, practical, tangible, pragmatic even, steps to avoid sin? Remember, the Bible doesn't say overcome all your temptations. It says flee them, run from them. The wise and godly man learns how to arrange and order his life so that it is easier to obey God than to obey his sinful desires. He removes as many obstacles to obedience as he possibly can. As John Owen says, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. Some people need to take some real practical steps to kill their sin, so they need to start their day with prayer while eating breakfast or having their cup of coffee before they go to their first meeting of the day. Why? Because otherwise they're going to be all the more tempted to be angry or disengaged or impatient. And they need to take practical steps to aid them in loving their boss and their coworkers. And guess what? Coffee helps. And the discipline of being sure to take advantage of practical means like coffee for some people really can be an act of sanctification. (laughs) You got to get up a little earlier. You got to make the coffee, whatever it is. Well, Jake, that sounds like you're trying to kill the deeds of the flesh by the flesh. The Bible says if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You're trying to put them to death with coffee? For real? Okay, come on. Listen. Where does a true heartfelt desire to be holy come from? It comes from the Spirit. Where does the will to work and fight against the deeds of the flesh come from? It comes from the Spirit. Who is willing to throw the whole kitchen sink into fighting his sin? the spiritual man. Refusing to take practical steps to be godly under the pretense that those practical steps are not spiritual is something that only an unspiritual person would do. It's exactly what you would do if you were looking to make provision for your flesh. 
I judge you for being unspiritual because you leave your iPhone in the living room at night. I'm going to set a booby trap for myself and keep it on my nightstand because that's more spiritual. No. Remember what I said before. Can you modify your behavior in a way that displeases God? Yeah, sure. Anyone can become a Pharisee. You can try and succeed at becoming a superficially better person with coffee and diet and exercise and all kinds of behavior modification tactics. But God knows your heart. He knows if you're a child who's praying that he would deliver you from evil and who is just doing his best to honor the Father. And he knows if you're just putting on a good show. Now, remember the better question, though. Can you really live a life that pleases God without taking actual, practical, tangible steps to avoid sin? I say no. One last thing about that. Look, I know we all have besetting sins. Sins that are so deeply rooted in us that they feel impossible to overcome. You don't even know where to begin when it comes to trying to address them. That's what pastors and elders are for. That's what we are for. Come talk to us. We'll pray with you. We'll help you fight your sin. We'll walk with you as you deal with it. Pray the whole Lord's Prayer like a child would talk to his father, his heavenly father, who is holy and to be feared, and who is his father who loves and cares for and provides for him, who protects him and keeps him safe, who gave his own son to adopt him into his family and rescue him from the domain of sin and Satan in the world. And when it comes to this part of the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, let it remind you, first, that Jesus, that Jesus taught us to pray this way because God wants to protect us from sin and temptation. And second, that it's here because we need to want to be protected from sin and temptation. And that only happens if we've been born again by his spirit. So ask God to change your heart. Ask him to help you want what he wants for you. And begin to think carefully about your sins and temptations and the practical steps that you can take in your life to walk in a way that pleases God. What is one thing that you can change? One baby step you can take today. So come to your heavenly father today. Confess your sins. Grab his hand. Get on your knees. Ask him to lead you not into temptation, but to deliver you from evil. Then get back up on your feet and work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and good and we love you. We don't love you as we ought, but we do want to please you. Would you provide for all our needs? Would you forgive us all our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? And would you protect us from temptation? Would you deliver us from the evil that lives in our own hearts as well as the evil of this world and of the devil? Help us, Father, as you've promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen.